0: If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and in that, I rejoice. Amen. Good morning.
1: It's good to be with you all this morning. Obviously, I'm not Greg. And that was obvious, too, with the awkward transition that I made into the pastoral prayer that made you all stand up. Um, my apologies for that, but it's, we can pray standing as well. Um, Greg and Tony currently are stranded in San Francisco as they're trying to get back from a vacation trip um, for their anniversary. Um, So we can celebrate with them. I think it's 34 years, if that's what I remember, 34 years, 31, I apologize. (laughs) I knew that there was a family member in here that would, uh, (laughs) yeah, so he asked me to preach the word this morning. And uh, decided to continue on where um, we left off before Palm Sunday in Philippians. Um, The funny thing is, is this passage, I don't think the Lord wants Greg to preach it because Terry preached it back in December and now I'm preaching it. So I don't know, (laughs) maybe he'll get around to it eventually. Um, But we have the opportunity to see what God is teaching us in his word in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Um, Before I dive in, will you pray with me as we look into God's word? Father God, I come to you now asking um, for your grace, uh, for your mercy, for your power, for your um, just strength in the midst of weakness to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Um, God, we want to look into your word. We want to see you exalted and lifted high. We want to see how glorious and magnificent you are, and may that give us confidence in who you are and in your gospel to tell the entire world about you. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. In 2016, I had the privilege of meeting a man named Nick Ripken. Some of you guys might know who this guy is. It's actually his alias. I can't tell you his actual name. Um... And I met him while serving on a short-term trip in the Middle East. And after beginning his ministry by pastoring in Kentucky for many years, Nick and his wife served for over 32 years in Africa, focusing their gospel efforts on reaching the Somali people. And they were amazed. They were astounded as God brought many men and women to faith in Christ out of the false religion of Islam. But they were also struck and grieved by the fact that many of these Muslim background believers they would soon see persecuted and even martyred for their faith in Christ, for simply being Christians. And in the midst of such pain and suffering, Nick was amazed by how confident and joyful these brothers and sisters were in Christ and his gospel. And after experiencing that hardship, They more recently have been on this this pilgrimage that eventually turned into a a book um, and several books describing what had happened, but they visited over 72 countries in the world and interviewed over 600 believers that had experienced persecution, whether that be from a radical Islamicist group or from the Iron Curtain back when the Soviet Union was strong. And they were asking, they are interviewing, saying, how did you continue to follow Jesus when it was so hard? How did they do it? And what it was is they had confidence in Christ, Jesus, and him crucified, and what he promised them in his word, they knew that it was going to come to fruition, even if it meant suffering. And there were some striking comments that were made, but one that he shares um, in, uh, in his interviews, is this? Listen, it says, What is the dagger in the heart to believers in persecution? Is our lack of understanding how we connect with them? We've got a decision that we make every day. We can ask ourselves this question Do I want to identify with the believers in persecution, or do I want to aden- identify with their persecutors? Do I want to identify with the person in chains? Or do I want to identify with the person who has chained them? And when you ask them, well, how how did I determine who I identify with? They say, by whether or not today you share Jesus with someone else or keep him to yourself. Because the number one desire of Satan is to deny people access to Jesus. And in our passage today, as we look at it, we will see... How Paul explains to the Philippians how the Roman church is connected with him and so are they in his adversity, so that all the persecution he's endured, they can know for sure that it has actually happened for the advance of the gospel. All of it has happened for the advance of the gospel. And for us today in this room in America, on the west side of Cincinnati, problem that we all face today as believers is that we struggle to see how God could possibly advance the gospel without advancing us as well. I feel like it's a tag team sort of thing. Advance God, advance me. It's our default and faulty interpretation regarding the troubles we face is that they keep us from really making some headway as a disciple of Christ. I could really follow you if these obstacles weren't all in the way. Like, I could... I could be better prepared to preach this morning if I didn't have only four hours of sleep because my children are conspiring together to wake up at different moments (laughs) to not allow us to sleep. And we convince ourselves that these are all threats to God working out things for his glory. But we aren't the good news Christ is and he must increase, and I must decrease. And the reality is is that our confidence is often placed in the wrong position. Favorable circumstances are trusted and pursued rather than Christ and him crucified. We lack a holy curiosity that's excited to learn about the purpose behind this hardship, behind the good and the evil that God ordains to befall us. A holy curiosity that asks the question, what are you doing in this situation, Lord? How are you going to create something beautiful out of these ashes? How are you going to do something amazing here in this diagnosis? What are you up to with this death? And, Christian, your hardship, you must realize that it is a divine opportunity to proclaim Christ rather than yourselves, to proclaim Christ rather than yourselves. And the only way that you can see and steward the opportunities, these opportunities, is to have a confidence in the Lord and his gospel rather than in yourselves and in your circumstances. In our passage today, we're going to see four things that the gospel does. The gospel, confidence in the gospel does these four things, and I Try to make it easy to remember, so I decided to make them four E's. Gospel confidence evangelizes the lost. Secondly, gospel confidence edifies the church. It envies not. And lastly, it enjoys Christ. It evangelizes the lost, edifies the church, envies not, and enjoys Christ. First, gospel confidence evangelizes the lost. Look in the text with me verses 12 through 13. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, verse 12 here, it represents a new section in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And this opening statement, it, it would have been a familiar way for first century writers to inform their recipients of the letter of circumstances in their life. But what would be striking is that Paul doesn't focus on the details regarding his situation. He doesn't waste his reader's time by telling him, like, hey, the chains this time, they're actually, they're made of iron. Or, hey, you know what? The diet, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. They're feeding me okay in this, on the house arrest. And he doesn't tell them about the The guard that comes every Tuesday on his shift that smells like he hasn't taken a bath ever in his life, he doesn't worry about sharing those details. No, his desire is to give the Philippians the right interpretation of the news concerning all of his sufferings and now his imprisonment. All of it has happened for the advance of the gospel. And what follows are these unexpected results, from what initially seemed like a, a dire predicament the anxiety that may have struck these believers when they first heard that the founder of their church was in bonds is met with the apostles confidence that all is actually well it's going great in fact things are going much better than he could have originally planned it's it's going so well you see paul knows that the gospel continues to progress even when walls seem to rise up in its way. And starting with the word so that here, you see those words so that, Paul shares two results of God's plan for gospel advancement in Rome. The first result is that it has become public knowledge that Paul is incarcerated for Christ. He's not in prison for committing some sort of heinous crime. He is there because he is a Christian, because he is in Christ. And the apostle here is sharing in his Lord's sufferings and in his loving kindness. God gives Paul the courage to see his prison as a pulpit. Instead of going to Roman synagogues and marketplaces to preach, Paul is given a rotating audience of one guard at a time, chained beside him, maybe 18 inches away, every four hours. And for most, this situation would have been Super discouraging, but Paul chooses to be a disciple-maker over despairing. And as Acts 28 says, Luke informs us, When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him, and he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. To the argument that chains are a hindrance to the gospel advancing, Paul rebuts, there is no hindrance here. All I see is the potential for some hospitality. Each day, Paul welcomed a new member of the Imperial Guard to his makeshift prison table to hear about Christ the King. And we know what a good beverage to serve when you have guests over is right? It's lemonade. It's lemonade. He, uh, he takes the lemons of his chains and he turns them, whips them up into some evangelistic lemonade. You know, the saying, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. But the problem is, is, I mean, I worked at Chick-fil-A for several years. You can't just make lemonade with some lemons. That's just lemon juice. Right? You need more than just some lemons. So what? You need water. You need something sweet. Sugar. Maybe honey. So what Paul does is he takes two ingredients that he already possesses, the living water of Christ and the sweetness of the promises of God in his word. And he takes that with the tartness of that lemon juice of his chains and he, and he whips it up into some Lemonade, and he optimistically drinks in the refreshing providence of God that this whole ordeal has happened for the advance of the gospel in house arrest, in prison. And the reverberating effect of Paul's chained evangelism is that the gospel has become known through the entire, through the whole imperial guard. The name of Christ has made its way from the place of Paul's house arrest all the way to what's called the praetorian guard. And this word here refers to the, the emperor's own elite troops. These were like the crack squad. They were the, the legit guys, like nearby the, the, the palace. And these members of the guard, they'd keep watch over Paul in different shifts, like I said before. And Paul's Christ-laden conversations with the guards were then repeated and discussed with other members. Because they'd be like, hey, did you, were you assigned to that Paul guy for four hours? Like, yeah, he just, did he talk about Christ the whole time? Yeah, he just wouldn't stop talking about him. That's all he talked about. And with chains on his hands, what is wrong with this man? They just kept discussing these interesting interactions and were even intrigued by it to the point that some of them believed that what he was saying was true. And this word-of-mouth advertising of the gospel eventually becomes widespread within the Roman government as these guards are reassigned to other areas of society, taking the message of Christ along with them. And the gospel moves in such a contagious way that Paul can say at the end of his letter in Philippians 4.22 that all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The good news of Jesus has made its way into the emperor's own house. And as one commentator has written, Paul's imprisonment, it creates this ripple effect in Rome. Paul kind of acts like a, a Trojan horse in Caesar's system. Paul demonstrates courage that is rooted in the gospel because he knows that there's tremendous wisdom in the way it moves, and the way God designed his word to go forth. It's kind of like a lizard. What do you, what do you mean A lizard. Well, do you, do you remember what Agur says in Proverbs 30? In verse 24, he writes, Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. And then he lists the ants, and the rock badgers, and the locusts, before completing his list with the lizard. And he explains that the lizard you can take in your hands. And yet... It's in king's palaces. I don't know if you've noticed, as the weather has gotten better, my wife and I and our children have gone on walks, and on a sunny day, you might notice all of these lizards scurrying around. And these, these lizards, they weren't initially here, apparently. They're called Lazarus lizards, and they were brought over here at one point, and there were just three of them that survived from some little kid who didn't understand the rules of customs and bringing things back into the country. And, and from those three, there are now thousands upon thousands of them all throughout Cincinnati. They're everywhere. And if I'm feeling particularly athletic one day with my children on the walk, I could try and catch one of those and put it in my children's hands and tell them about it. And we can observe it and and be in wonder of it, and yet those types of lizards, they can get into the smallest nooks and crannies. They can make their way into places you never thought they could go, and around the world, some of the most majestic palaces and castles, even in the midst of what seems like security detail that is intense on the outside, little lizards can make their homes there. The gospel has done the same thing now in Rome, making its way into Caesar's palace. <laughs> See, the gospel Christ is made manifest to the imperial Garden and to all the rest, other non-Christians in Rome, they've, they've started to hear this. Confidence in the gospel results in the proclamation of Christ to the unbelieving world, to the lost, outside the church, in the public square, all through relationships. You can't keep it to yourself. Not only this, gospel confidence displayed outside of the church also encourages boldness within the body of Christ, which brings us to our next point. Number two, gospel confidence edifies the church. It builds her up. Look at Philippians 1.14. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The second result is that God, going, second result, but going back to that so so that, is that God uses Paul's faithful imprisonment to grow the believer's confidence in the Lord. In verse 14, Paul piles on multiple terms here to express the impact of his sufferings that what it had on the majority of the, the Roman church. In, in the original, these, these are like, one word after another just kind of saying wow the confidence just grows it says becoming confident and then much more you could even say exceedingly beyond all measure and then they're bold they they dare all the more as the hcsb says this is this is the word that's used by of joseph of arimathea when he he dares to go to the guards and says i i want to bury jesus's body in the tomb And then it closes without fear, no phobias. So where does does this type of boldness, where this surety come from? Well, it's the, the confidence of these believers, as revealed in the text here, look at it. It says it's grounded in the Lord. It's grounded in the Lord. It's not found in Paul or his attitude and its hardship, as impressive as that is. It's in the Lord. See, the root of boldness to preach the gospel is found in the certitude of, of the mighty hand of God, of his strength, of his power. And in his wisdom, the Lord uses Paul's chains as an instrument for further convincing these Christians that he can be trusted that his promises are secure, that he alone is worthy to be feared, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church because it is precisely his church. It is not that most of the brethren were timid, though. As Peter O'Brien explains, their courage had just risen to new heights when they might have been intimidated. You see, in God's providence, such heightened boldness in God's gift is is God's gift to a church that is experiencing opposition. If you can remember from Greg's introduction to this letter, it was likely composed in 60 to 61 AD. And at this time, we know the Emperor Nero was in power. Now, Nero was one of the most violent persecutors of the Christian church in the first century. Now, although the persecution, the danger for believers, it hadn't ramped up to its highest point yet. That will happen few years later from the time of this writing, the heat was starting to turn up in the Roman society for those who wouldn't say, Caesar is Lord. And nevertheless, amidst the growing hostility of the populace there, these Christians were a fierce and courageous minority. Paul and these Roman Christians would have agreed with the words spoken many centuries later by the Scottish reformer John Knox Who said a man with God is always in the majority He's always in the majority Because of his confidence in the gospel Paul knew that being with God While in chains made him a part of the true majority And there's power in numbers right in the majority with the Lord He had this holy disposition That to build a resolve in him and his brothers in the Roman church as they sought to remain faithful to God. Because confidence in the gospel edifies the church. But what does this confidence edify the church to do? Does it make you bold enough to to listen to more sermons or podcasts in, in your free time? To not waste that time, but to do things like that? Does it make you more disciplined in your daily personal devotion so you don't miss a checkbox on the day? Or if you do, you come back and you get it done the next day really quickly? Those are really good things. But what does the text say? Paul explains that they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They're edified as a church to proclamation, to proclaiming Christ. And it's out of the overflow of their hearts, their mouths speak. And you, likewise, are to herald the truth of the eternal word made flesh. And seeing Paul's example, we too can discard all the fears that might deter us to preach the gospel and to any and all who would hear. And thus, this, this takes every single one of our relationships, brothers and sisters, every single one of our family members, every business interaction, every worship gathering together with each other on Sunday mornings. And it changes it from being something that we would see as a chance to be a consumer or to avoid messing up or to prove ourselves as, as holy and righteous and, and, and awesome. But it, it turns it into an opportunity to proclaim the all-sufficient worth of Christ crucified with our words. So husband does the The fear of awkwardness keep you from washing your wife with the word of God just reading the Bible with her sister does the fear of losing another woman's friendship keep you from confronting her in her sins parents does the fear of possibly saying something wrong that might mess everything up and raising your children right during family worship or over the the dinner table does does that keep you from doing anything at all and maybe, employee, boss, are you reluctant to rock the boat at work by making it abundantly clear with your words that there is no hope in life and death except that you are not your own, but you belong to God who purchased you in Christ? May you be encouraged, may we all be encouraged by the example of our brother Paul in chains and the early church in Rome in danger to speak the word of life in every sphere that we inhabit today. We fight the fear of man with the fear of God through the sure word of the gospel. And the good news is what binds all of us together here as brothers and sisters to fearlessly co-labor in its advancement in all the places that he puts us. To do that together, to cooperate with one another. We're not in this alone. We do this as the body of Christ we don't want to turn it into a competition around who is preaching it but that the, about who is preached which brings you to the next point gospel confidence envies not gospel confidence envies not look at philippians 1 15 through 17 some indeed preach christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel; the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And these three verses here—they're they're striking. They're really odd, coming after what he just said, right? They serve as a parenthetical statement on who are these emboldened brothers to you know, that he mentions in verse fourteen. And Paul asserts that they've kind of broken themselves up into two different groups. Two different groups that have emerged from this evangelistic energy sparked by his chains. The first group preaches Christ, get this, from envy and rivalry. And a couple verses down, he also says that they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. I mean, just think about the striking juxtaposition of these words for a second preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ, beside the words, envy and rivalry, and selfish ambition. The motivation to share Christ is out of these things? Does that sound like a Christian impulse to you all? It's easy, easy answer. No, it doesn't. See, even in those days, the word translated as envy or jealousy was described by Aristotle as the base passion of a base people. It's being more concerned with depriving another of a desired thing than actually gaining it yourself. <laughs> See, the idea of envy, man, it would be a common theme in an honor culture back then because you would have all of these men vigorously competing to like get more acclaim in the public square to look better than the other guy. We don't have that problem today in any way, do we? And as the philosopher Xenophon wrote, said, the envious are those who are annoyed only at their friend's successes. They get annoyed at that. A friend does well. Oh, man, he did well again. He can't celebrate it. It's the opposite of rejoicing with those who rejoice in weeping, with those who weep, the exact opposite. And in the New Testament, we see the same word of envy used in several places. It's used to describe a work of the flesh in Galatians 5:21. It's a feature of a person's life before conversion in Titus 3:3. It's something that we're supposed to put away as we grow up in salvation, from 1 Peter 1 and 2, and in Matthew, Mark. It's even revealed to be the motive behind the chief priest's dealings with Jesus. In Mark 15.10, it says, For he, Jesus, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So this idea of envy, it's, it's not a great, <laughs> a great thing to aspire to. It's not something that you want to be doing things out of. And it's usually coupled with rivalry or strife, just like we see here, because jealousy... It gives birth to division. It gives birth to factions. And it did so in city-states back in the first century. And it does that in churches too. The attitude of quarreling is always used in the New Testament to describe disputes that endanger the church. The apostle Paul he he addresses this issue in Rome because he's concerned that what he's seeing here, the seeds of that same discord may have already started to to germinate in Philippi, and he's trying to head it off at the pass. He doesn't want a similar thing that happened in Corinth to happen, where you've got all these different groups clamoring about, I followed Paul, and I followed Apollos, and I followed Peter, and I followed Christ, and just kind of sifting yourself over into who's your favorite preacher, who gets more acclaim than the other person. And these envious evangelists, they possessed a a gratitude for the cross that had ironically become idolatrous and self-serving. Jonathan Edwards calls this the gratitude of the hypocrites. The gratitude of the hypocrites. Look what he says about these people and the religious affections. It says, They first rejoice and are elevated with the fact that they are made much of by God. And then on that ground that they're made much of, God seems in a sort lovely to them. They are pleased in the highest degree in hearing how much God and Christ make of them so that their joy is really a joy in themselves and not in God. Paul explains here that the desire behind this group's preaching was that the people would make much of them or at least that they would be esteemed as better preachers than that apostle over there in chains. And perhaps, I mean, they were just annoyed that Paul was encroaching on their turf. Like, they were in Rome before, here he comes, shipwrecked and in bonds, and now he's here preaching. Or Maybe they're just jealous he's really smart, He has great intellect, or maybe he's an apostle. I wish I was an apostle. Regardless, they sought to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They wanted to receive praise for their proclamation. And the language here implies that they weren't successful. They wanted to do it, but it just wasn't happening. They tried their very best to discredit Paul publicly and bring distress upon him. In their imagination, they're thinking, oh, we're, we're pouring salt on the wounds that, that, that Paul bears on his back for Jesus. And in reality, here's Paul in prison celebrating the kingdom's unstoppable movement among the gentiles which is what he was called to do and to celebrate and to be about it's happening you can't get him down and the attitude of these petty preachers it it just sits in stark contrast with this second group that we see here in the text that was emboldened to preach christ they proclaim the gospel look here in the text from goodwill And then also it says they do it out of love. You guys remember the famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13? Paul reminds us love is patient and kind. Love does not, what? Envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but does what? Rejoices with the truth. These brothers love Christ loved his gospel, loved Paul, and they rejoiced with the truth. They had confidence in what God was doing through their friends' imprisonment. The second group knew that Paul was sovereignly placed there. Literally, the, but what it means is he's laid down in prison for the defense of the gospel. And this word defense, which we saw a couple weeks ago in verse 7 of chapter 1, it's a rhetorical or legal term. And in Paul's perspective, his bonds were just part of his apologetical work, his activity at the very heart of the Roman Empire, not only with the guards, but also eventually his hope before the government, before Caesar. These envious preachers thought, if we were to use this sort of legal terminology like a court, they thought the title of this court case should read Rome v. Paul. But Paul and his brothers of Goodwill knew that it was actually Rome the gospel. And Paul was the one who was the defense attorney, and he was confident in the defendant. He was confident in the gospel. and the gospel's on trial, and Paul has been invited to give a defense for someone that he knows is victorious. For the crucified resurrected Christ, the same one who radically transformed his life on the road to Damascus. And that was a task that he delighted to undertake. It was not something that he begrudgingly took part in. He loved it. He he lived for it. That was his all-consuming desire and joy. Which brings us to the last point. Gospel confidence enjoys Christ. It enjoys Christ. Philippians 1.18 says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaiming and in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This is, a, this is a remarkable conclusion that Paul makes in response to these selfish evangelists, right? You know, he says, what does it matter? It doesn't matter at all. What then? I mean, most of us here this morning, as we're listening to the description of these men, we wonder how in the world could these preachers sleep at night? Like they know what they're doing. How could they lay their head down on a pillow or whatever they put their heads down on in the first century? It's, it's baffling that their existence is even possible. And Paul just says, he, whatever. He's not like up in a you know, roar. He's not... Um, doing some, you know, furious tweets online about how awful all the people are. He's, he's like, whatever. Any and every way that Christ is proclaimed, Paul says, I will rejoice. Whether he is publicly heralded by pretentious men or sincere men, I will celebrate it. I will delight when the truth is proclaimed by both the hypocrite and the humble. What a surprise. It doesn't even, it almost doesn't even make sense. How could such large-heartedness exist in Paul, not just in response to the good disciples in Rome, but also to those who strive against him? It's easy to, to be excited about those that seem like they're following Christ for the right motives, right? You know, hey, that's great. Look at you. But, but those that are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition how can you celebrate that it's because paul is not worried about what happens to him or what is said about him the fact that they're saying things about him on the outside the only thing he's concerned about is the name of christ being magnified the name of christ being magnified and even these men that have awful motives sometimes say things that he's like that's true that's right that is Christ. That is the gospel. You're, you're wicked and you're trying to use him for gain, but that is exactly what I proclaim. And he has this deep confidence in the gospel advancing, even using awful vessels like that. Because God, who is the good news, gives him unshakable joy. His joy isn't in them and in their motives and in what they're doing, It's not in him, it's in Christ. And that joy, it can't be phased by shipwrecks. It can't be phased by imprisonments. It can't be phased by diagnoses. It can't be phased by wayward children. It can't be phased by any hardship that could come into your mind as being the thing that will keep you from loving Christ. So, brother and sister, can can you rejoice like Paul in the midst of your suffering and see it as, as a chance for the name of Christ to be advanced? It takes some intentionality because you can't just stare at the problem the whole time. That'll lead you to despair if you just stare at the problem the whole time you eventually have to look up you have to be curious and say what are you doing Lord what are you doing do you care more about your reputation than you do about your redeemers are you concerned about how you're being perceived by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ more than Christ being proclaimed and glorified See, Paul is, he has one ambition, is that Christ would be proclaimed. He knows his weakness. It's there before him. Every single day. And he gets up and he looks in the mirror. It's there right in front of him. He's like, ah, but your grace is sufficient. Your, your power is made perfect in my weakness. Anything that I think that I might have that's awesome that I might have that's like just amazing, it's not even really mine. You gave it to me to steward it, to use it for the proclamation of Christ. So Christian, your hardship, you must see that it is a divine opportunity to proclaim Christ rather than yourselves. And you can have confidence in Christ and his gospel to leverage your hardest seasons to evangelize the lost to edify your church. We want to see you being faithful. You want encourage us. You encourage me. And then we do that by not envying others, another situation. You are who you are, and you follow Christ. Don't be like Peter, saying, hey, what about John, the disciple over there? And Jesus says, no, you follow me. Don't worry about that. Follow me. And then with all of that, evangelizing the lost, edifying the church, not envying others, you can drink in the deep enjoyment that is Christ your Lord, your Savior, your treasure. It's for what we proclaim as not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord.